Just doing some back-of-the-napkin math here, more than half of all Friendly Fire episodes are about World War II films, and half of those World War II films are ones where the heroes are pulled from a jail cell and recruited into impossible missions where they are deemed expendable. What mean? That makes this genre of Friendly Fire episodes more numerous than ones about submarines, B-17s, and atrocities that happen in Vietnam told in flashback, where we start out not understanding why our main character is such a short fuse before realizing that no one ever really leaves Vietnam combined. And how many spins on the theme of assembling a unit of specialized commandos out of ex-convicts that rises above their reputations, proceeds to kick ass and save the day, as well as the free world, Will we get before we interrogate why any prisoner would ever agree to this deal? It's like being on a chain gang except with a Nazi attacking you, and that doesn't sound better to me. In fact, it sounds like jail, right now. In jail, at least you get three square meals and a bed, and you're telling me that eating tree bark and sleeping in the snow has that beat? No thank you, sir. Perhaps this non-submarine-related subgenre of a subgenre actually is a case for prison reform. Now, there's a film paper right there. It's confusing that in Age of Heroes, you're expecting a colon and a subtitle where none exists. The main character, Freed from Prison, is played by the positively cherubic Danny Dyer and not Sean Bean, the actor at the top of any casting agent's list titled Resting Prison Face. It's this guy that punches out an officer, and it's up to Sean Bean to trust him. Sean Bean has prison face, but also trusts someone who's been to prison face, so we, the viewers, are inclined to agree with his judgment. We do not, however, agree with Sean Bean being second fiddle in this mission or on the movie poster. I think we could all do with some fresh ideas for this well-worn story, because there's a lot about this film we've seen before, the secret... German technology that could change the outcome of the war, the hard-bitten major who is desperate enough to sacrifice everything for the mission, and the stoicism of beautiful Norwegian farmers. Sure, the story of this film may feel like a retread, but the great thing about Friendly Fire is that every episode is very different, no matter how many of the same kind of movies we see. Shut up, I'm talking. On today's Friendly Fire, Age of Heroes. Welcome to Friendly Fire, the war movie podcast that, after we're finished with you, you'll all all wish you were doing time with the Red Caps. I'm Ben Harrison. (laughs) I'm Adam Pranica. And I'm John Roderick. And I'm John Roderick. I can't do it. (laughs) Ah, from the clan Roderick. I'm John Roderick. (laughs) Our war cry is... (laughs) A Danae drink! <laughs> Kept moving the get out of the way. <laughs> I love this origin story. This feels like a super heroic origin story for Reigns, right? So you liked Reigns. Reigns worked for you. Oh, yeah. I think when you establish his character as someone willing to punch an officer in the face <laughs> after what they'd been through... Absolutely. To the degree that I was confused when Reigns then gave up the Reigns as far as being uh, a main character uh, boy, over oof. to the Sean Bean character. Oof. He did though. I, I got a little bit of I got main character whiplash in this film. Did you guys? Well you never you never set up a movie where there's a bad boy who doesn't follow the rules. And then, like, through, like one quarter of the way into the movie, he's all of a sudden, like, definitely follows the rules from here on out. <laughs> I am sorry about all of the rule breaking before. Straight and narrow for me from here That's on right. in. That's right. Never comes into play again. I can't think of another film that we've seen recently where I feel like four of the main characters could have been the A story here and we could have followed them throughout. Yeah. And, and been fairly satisfied with the result. I totally forgot 
reading the little description of the film at the end of our last uh, episode that this was about the origin story of Ian Fleming's uh, secret commando unit. And so the the James Darcy character, like cutting back to him sitting in the office waiting to hear on the phone <laughs> what's going on. I was like, why do they keep cutting back to this guy? Who cares about this guy? Who is he? Like, are they just cutting back because they got James Darcy for a day? It's it's weird because it's a major part of selling the selling the movie, like the real life events of Ian Fleming's 30 commando unit. But it's like Ian Fleming sat in an office, <laughs> moved some papers around at what his like his his big moment in the film is he he picks up the phone and somebody puts him on hold. Yeah, someone pisses him off on the phone. <laughs> wow. We are masters of our own fate. Or at least we should be. The head fake that this film gives you about the presence of a submarine. Yeah. Really puts you in the shoes of the characters here because I feel like a couple of times throughout the story, I was promised a submarine I did not get, and I was extremely upset by it. Yeah, that's true. That's like Chekhov's submarine, but using it, mm. using the lack of submarine at the end for for a story purpose. Imagine that using the lack of submarine instead of <laughs> submarine actual. I had a submarine-shaped hole in my heart after this movie. What's going on where the last movie we watched was a bunch of British spy guys in World War II, and we get to see the submarine, and this one is a bunch of... And it's a, another radio spy movie. Mm -hmm. Radios and radios. And th this time, they're calling on the radio, and guess what? They're not getting what they want from the other side, and then they <sighs> then the radio doesn't work. Come on. Yeah. The thing is that we're not just promised a submarine. We are promised a submarine that surfaces off the coast of Norway and our team of crack crack commandos goes out in presumably a rubber dinghy and gets on a submarine and escape. Like that's not just I get to see a submarine. That's top level submarine action. It almost feels like a prequel to a film that came before in a weird way. Yeah. Why not give us the submarine? I don't know, man. Well, also, like, why? There's a lot of whys here. Like, this is a training sequence film, right? It's a, it's mm -hmm. a full metal jacket. We get the first half of the movie is them out there running around. We get, like, perhaps the greatest wartime Tam O'Shanter that you're ever going to see in a film. <laughs> Sergeant McKenzie comes to work in a Tam O'Shanter that's bigger than he is. And they do, and we're getting a little bit, this is a prequel to every other Commando movie ever because this purports to be the first Commandos. It's not just the sombrero-sized Tam O'Shanter <sighs> no. for me, John. That fucking drawstring green sweater Oh, yeah. It's incredible. Oh, yeah. That's a nice sweater. I've never seen a sweater with a drawstring around the neck before. It's a little <laughs> Tell bit. Tell me about that. It's a sweater. It's a hoodie. It's a cape. I'm wearing tiger traps on both of my feet <laughs> and both of my hands. I'm waiting for you to tell me why this is not a canonical manner of dress. I loved it regardless. I loved that sweater. I was never going to, I was never going to take issue with that sweater. It's kind of fun to be in Norway for a World War II film. I feel like this is a, a mode of World War II that you hear about a lot, but we haven't seen a ton of in film. Well, that's right. And and um, there are some movies, some war movies set in Norway and Sweden that are on our list. But, you know, the most famous Norwegian spy mission thing uh, a commando event was there was a, a like a hydroelectric plant in norway that was processing heavy water as a part of the the german nuclear weapons project and the manhattan project dudes recognized that if the germans made enough heavy water they were going to be able to split the atom the heavy water is what you get when you eat too much ice cream <laughs> Yeah, heavy water is your call sign for this for this episode. 
Yeah, I love I love like commandos on like telemark skis going up the side of a mountain. That's some fucking awesome shit. I'm super mad that the British commandos did not have white camouflage <sighs> over jackets. It's like the first commandos, so they didn't think about the the camouflage needs of commandos. They just thought about the knife needs. The Nazis had them. They yeah. had the white jackets. Ah, so many things this movie got close to and didn't get. Agreed. There's something very like hard to put your finger on about this movie that makes it feel like a TV movie and not a film. And I think like part of it is just that it's like a little bit low budget and a couple of special effects are a little like, eh, that's a little like PlayStation 3 level special effect. Like that opening scene when they're retreating and trying to get their guy out of the woods and they're like hiding behind that that fallen tree. It looked to me like a thing you see on the Reddit filmmakers sub like, hey, this is a camera test for a, mm -hmm. a short that I'm working on. What do you guys think of the firearms effects? And frankly, my answer is the firearms effects don't work. It, I don't I don't buy it. Which is funny because I was in. Uh, we've got some cowardice right off the bat. We've got some heroism. And we're retreating to Dunkirk. So yeah. technically, this is a Dunkirk movie. <laughs> yeah, it is. But we're, but we're in that scene that always comes before the Dunkirk movie where we're always asking like, well, wait a minute. Well, how did all these guys get to Dunkirk? Like, it's a Dunkirk movie. All this movie needed was a boat dad. Yeah. You guys have both said it. But I didn't believe it. Like the Reigns origin story, I never saw as uh, as cowardice. When he tells the superior that he was ordered back to Dunkirk, I believed him. Was that not to be believed? I wasn't saying he was cowardly. I was saying, you know, his, his little squad was like, ah, you know, they were panicking and freaking out and right. shooting blind and yeah. like doing a bad job. And then he was this steady hand. Yeah, he kind of whips him into shape in that moment. He does. Yeah. But then he, you know, he's so insubordinate to that officer that it's a kind of TV movie insubordinate where you're like, nobody really would talk that way. You know, you're not going to, with one stripe on your jacket, you're not going to say, we're not fighting anymore. Fuck you, bro. <laughs> like, no. I'm on the other side of this, guys. I I felt a great catharsis in that moment. Like, you've just been through hell. Like, you're tired and hungry. Like, who is this fucking guy that's that's in your way on your way to Dunkirk? I just want to get on a boat. Get out of my way. You didn't like his mustache. I didn't like his attitude one bit. He did not give Reigns any, anything for his trouble. Mm -hmm. And I feel like if, if they're all in it together, there should have been some recognition of what he had been through. Hmm. Like you can still be a leader and still recognize what had happened to Reigns and he didn't for a moment. That scene where like friendlies are coming into the into the kill box and like trying to explain like, no, no, we're British, we're British, don't shoot us, is always such a fraught moment. The tension of that never breaks because it goes from don't shoot us, we're British to don't shoot us, we don't feel that the orders you're giving us apply to us in like a legalistic way. And I, I didn't feel that anyone was being unreasonable. I think that they just, they just wanted to get through the scene so quickly that they kind of abbreviated what that interaction would really look like. Yeah. Good call. We need to get this guy to prison. Which like to the movie's credit, like this is a 90 minute movie. Like I didn't find myself bored at, any instant yep. in this movie and you know maybe if they'd spent the 15 minutes going over the soldier rule book or whatever <laughs> it would have really ruined the momentum of the beginning of the film but uh i understand we need to get him to prison and i understand we need to have him in prison so that sh we can have the scene of sean bean getting him out because that was like a super fun scene i i loved mm -hmm. the like when sean bean realized that this dude was pointing a gun at him because he thought that he'd gotten a, a wink and a nudge. I don't know if you've ever been through this, Ben, but like I've been at a job interview that I didn't know was a job interview. And then I got the job just based on how I acted in the moment <laughs> and Reigns thinking it's a job interview when it's not. 
was just brilliant. <laughs> I, I love that moment. But the dude that Sean Bean is there to actually pick up came across as profoundly mentally ill to me when he was in the prison. Right. The, the Brightling character? Yeah. He was really broken already and kept being broken. But somehow Sean Bean thought that he was like an essential member of his crew. And I don't, I, I never saw what his, I kept, I kept waiting for Sean Bean to say, he's the demolition expert and this guy's a right. master of disguise. <laughs> <laughs> it felt to me like his problem was physical, like he was asthmatic or something, but it was never clear about what his, his problem was, at least to me. He's very slight of stature. I kept expecting in the training act that it was going to be revealed that, you know, I'm really glad we, we also decided to have Reigns here because turns out Breitling is off his nut and is not, mm. is not going to be a person we can take into a war zone and trust not to get us all killed. Right. You could have just had him be the guy that got killed in the uh, when they get strafed in the airplane, right? And there it is. Maybe they're like worried about him and then oh well at least we've got extra guy reigns here to do the job that that guy was gonna do. Thank God for extra guy. <laughs> Here's the problem with Reigns, played by actor Danny Dyer. He does not have the face of a hard man. And Apparently, in Ingling, where he is an actor, he routinely plays like tough guys, which I don't understand because to me, he looks like former MTV VJ Kevin Seal. Right now, it's that quirky camper van Beethoven talking here with Eye of Fatima Part 1. He does not communicate that he's tough. And so I think his casting in Age of Heroes, which is a British war film, I think like a British casting director was like, oh man, we got to get Dan Dyer, uh, like ultimate British tough guy actor. Oh, that's interesting. I don't think you're ever going to out tough Sean Bean no. in terms of face. He's so tough. Like the, the full metal jacket parallel here is, is apparent because Mackenzie takes over this movie. Yeah. And becomes, as soon as he's on screen, the most interesting character. And I think that's sort of a flaw in this film, is that it's introduced someone so great and interesting that you're like, oh, no, like, don't <laughs> cut away from Mackenzie. He's suddenly all I want to know about for this movie. Yeah. It, it's almost a failure of casting at that point, is that, like, you don't want to get someone with that much shine on them. Like, you want him to dial it back a little bit, I think, if you're constructing this thing. It's so interesting. He has such crazy on-camera charisma to me. I found him, like, wildly compelling. And, like, if you look him up on IMDb, like, a huge proportion of his recent credits are voices in video games. And I feel like that's such a strange use of an actor that has that much magnetism yeah. on screen. Like, I mean, he has a great voice too, but like put this dude in the front of the camera. <laughs> Don't make him play Bryn in Horizon Zero Dawn. <laughs> <laughs> the penultimate scene in this movie where Mackenzie and Major Jones, Sean Bean and William Houston, like basically go into death pact with each other where it's like, you guys get out of here. You know, you got to get the radio operator back to the non-existent sub. Get him to Sweden. <laughs> and then they're they're like running out of bullets. And I'm like, and the, the movie on these two guys, like Butch Cassidy and Sundance kidding their way out of here. Well, I don't want to see these. That would have been brilliant. The B-rate guy and then two incidentals make it over into Sweden. That's not, I'm not like applauding that. I want to see these dudes riddled with bullets. They're my heroes. You know, actually, somebody else that wasn't applauding that, John, was an internet pedant. Would you guys like to hear a moment of pedantry? Yes. Mm. Yes. Even if the commandos reached Sweden, they would have been interned and not returned to England. Sweden was neutral during World War II. Neutral and sort of like half occupied by the Germans. I mean, not occupied, but like Germans were there. I think they had to get to Sweden and then meet up with the Swedish resistance and the Swedish resistance was going to get them out through occupied Denmark. And then from occupied Denmark, they were going to go to occupied 
Nederlands. The resistance never gets more stoic <laughs> than the Swedish resistance, right? That's right. It's very stoic. Yeah, but they have the best coffee of any resistance. <laughs> they hired David Niven to fly them over on the back of a V2 rocket. <laughs> John, I was with you on the final scene, the final Sean Bean scene with Mackenzie. You got to show me the bean in a war film like this because... I don't know about you guys, but I rewound it a couple times. I was like, did these guys die off screen? Yeah. There, there's no way they died off screen, right? And I rewound it and I and I kept thinking that I missed it when they were killed and they just cut away from them and we never go back to the bean. I was shocked by this. And it was another example of like that three card Monty of who the main character is in this film. Yeah. There's a last stand that we didn't see and it's a and it's a last stand movie and it's got and the two dudes that we love the most that we want to yeah. see in a last stand and we're denied right. it all to go with the fairly charmless Liv Jensen I wanted to see Vasquez and Gorman like hold the grenade together <laughs> and fucking blow up some Nazis at the end like that's the ending I wanted yeah. for Jones and McKenzie would have been great the, the problem is that Mackenzie is built up to be so fucking hard, it doesn't seem like he's killable. And so if you are making a war film where you don't see him die, you are meant to believe that he's alive. Like you just, you're hypnotized into this. It's why it seems so unjust that they just cut away the way they do. I mean, if they had cut away from Rollwright or whatever, you could safely assume that that guy's going to die out there. <laughs> but not Mackenzie. What's interesting also is that Sean Bean is always in a movie like a supporting and somewhat untrustworthy character, right? In Ronan, he doesn't know the color of the boathouse, right? In Lord of the Rings, he's the human being that suffers from the greatest weakness over the, you know, he's like the power of the ring. One does not simply walk into Sweden. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. That's how you get your horn cloven in twain. <laughs> it's it's so brisk. It's like mm -hmm. hopping into a cold pool at a sauna. <laughs> yeah. I loved Sean Bean as the authority, as the strong dude. He never wavered. He was reliable. I, I felt like... He was carrying me and this movie and the team, and he was a you know he's a little bit older now. He's he doesn't seem callow anymore. He seems like I believed him as a high ranking and fairly tough dude. So I often find myself like Sean Bean, kind of I don't know he he's a little bit of licorice for me sometimes, but but uh, an acquired taste yeah I thought he was great and, and the scene where James Darcy comes to the training camp and is clearly a posh officer in a, in a tent with a bunch of toughs but he acquits himself with his like his poshness never seems it's the thing about posh if you're posh enough it doesn't matter yeah, it works everywhere. Right, you just po you just overposh them, and they just they you know they wilt. That's the straw I've been grasping at my entire life, to be honest. <laughs> to be posh enough that the tough boys leave you alone. He works at the office. <laughs> I love when he calls Sean Bean. He calls uh, Steiner into into his office to like set up the op. And Sean Bean has just like a list of dudes in his pocket. Like, I'm going to need these guys. Yeah, right. I love that. I, I love that he just had that in his pocket. He carries that around just in case. Because he didn't know what he was being called in there for. He, he either, he must have assumed, but yeah. he still acted surprised. Like, what? Am I going operational? Oh, well, in that case, I happen to have this list of 10 guys. <laughs> You're not going to understand Breitling's inclusion on this list. But uh, I'm going to need him. <laughs> Can't tell you why. Yeah. I don't know why it's a bigger scandal that we're getting this other guy out of jail than Breitling, but it is. <laughs> when Bob Rains pulled that gun off of the guy and pointed at it 
Jones and said, get me out of here. I thought as soon as they pulled away, they were both going to crack up in laughter Mm-hmm. And Major Jones was going to go like, you are on the team. But Major Jones was fairly humorless about having that gun pointed at him. And I felt like that was a moment where the movie could have been fairly charming and and kind of sidestepped it. I think you're right that that scene informs the tone for everything that follows. I think I think it's it's super important how that plays out. Well, right, because there's no humor in this movie whatsoever. Yeah. There's no there's not a single moment of levity. There's roll right in the in the tower, like when he's looking at the radio shit all impressed. That's maybe as close as the film gets, right? When he's like he's he's doing the audit of all the equipment. Mm-hmm. And that's the scene where, where Sean Bean character is like, Shut the fuck up. Just stick stick it in your bag. Let's go. Yeah, like stop loafing around just being in awe of this stuff and Get it packed up. We don't have time. The movie doesn't have fun with it, though. It's that's a that's mm-hmm. a scene where he is sort of revealed to be a, a pain in the ass, and basically it boils down to the lack of Bob Rains ever showing that he's an iconoclast, a rule breaker, uh, you know, like uh, the unbroken. Uh, it takes like one third of the humanity away from. Not any one particular dude, but from the movie as a whole. You never fell for the because I got nowhere else to go-ness of Reigns. Like, you know, he's made to go through boot the hardest of anyone. That made him a sympathetic character for me. Are you saying that didn't work for you? Well, you know what I was missing in that? Because because that scene got me right up to that moment. Doing and you have you've commented on this over the years, Adam, when an actor Let's the boogers fly. Yeah. <laughs> when it gets productive. Yeah. When he lets snot drip down out of his nose, because you saw this in Gladiator, right? Yep. When when yep. we see when we see snot come out. When you go full mucosal. That's right. You got me. When the snot comes out, the shots come out. <laughs> if he had said, I got nothing else, I would have been like sold. But instead he goes, Give me another chance. Oh, no. So what Danny Dyer did was he held on to his vanity. He did. He did. And the movie let him. The movie let him. Like, give me another chance. Give me another chance? What the hell is that? Give me another chance. That's something that you say when you get caught cheating in in seventh grade. You don't say, mm. give me another chance. This guy's saying, like, I'm going to kick you back to prison, and you're going to spend the rest of the war breaking rocks. And you're like, give me another chance? You got to have boogers at that point. Let's try for our first heart attack, shall we? If prison is the thing in the background for Reigns, like if he can't pull it off and boot, that's where he's going back to. It never really felt dangerous for him, for me. It seemed like Reigns had the place wired immediately. And so it was an insufficient punishment to be in the background at all times. Who wants to go marching up and down the square? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, the Red Hats hated him, but Reigns was like ready to kick some ass at all times, too. It seems like he would have been fine. Yeah, right. I mean, at least at prison, you're not getting shot at and freezing your butt off, but... I didn't believe him as a hard guy, and I also didn't believe him as a transformed guy. I want to see this guy broken all the way down and remade. I think we're in agreement there. I get the sense that this guy is able to, but unwilling to go there for this movie. As an actor. Yeah. Man, I wondered about that because... That scene does just kind of like bounce off the surface. It does not pull me over to his side. And I feel like we've seen scenes like that, a character pushed to their breaking point a lot in this project. Like this is like a a war movie moment and like there's times that it works. It's another thing that's hard to put your finger on. Why is one person capable of getting us there with them and another person not? Is it willingness or is it, talent or is it like do you have to love his face more there's a couple of different avenues there though like you could either shoot snot rockets out of danny dyer's nose 
Or you could private pile him in such a way where you see him break. You see him break and turn psychotic, but you like usefully psychotic even for the rest of the film. You know what the problem is, I think? We have seen so many training montages. And I'm yeah. not just talking about us having watched war movies. I'm talking about everybody in everybody in movies. We've seen so many commandos train at Bud's school that a filmmaker feels like all they have to do now is give us a shorthand of it because we already know what it's like to be out in the surf lifting a log with your buddies or, you know, like really put through the shit. And so this movie tries to have it both ways. It assumes we know that this, that this guy, you know, that, that Bob Rain's holding his rifle over his head out in the, out in the Scottish highlands. This is my backyard, laddie. <laughs> this is a link style. <laughs> we do this for fun. <laughs> and the whole like run, you know, run it again or whatever. But this movie also wants us to spend a half an hour of a 90 minute movie in that boot camp. So it doesn't give us a break and only give us five minutes of a training montage and say, you know, you know, like, like, <laughs> right, right, like right. you see in the other movies that has this. Yeah. We've all been here before. Now let's get on yeah. to the, the caper. Well, that's the danger, right? I think, I think this is supporting your argument of like it, it wants to have it always. It wants to have the benefit of our knowledge of all the other boot camp scenes, but also every other scene where we've seen a guy break totally. But also every other scene where we've been in a we've been in some kind of bomber on a secret mission over the target, and all of a sudden our plane is getting strafed by Messerschmitts, and everybody's got to dive out. You know, like there's there's a lot of tropes here, and we kind of get both the trope and also the the shorthand of the trope. Either give me my trope straight up with a chaser. <laughs> or don't give me the tropes. The hipsters have the trope with a pickleback. Mm, yeah, that's gross. One thing that I feel like every like post year 2000 World War II movie has to do is like justify its existence by having a scene about the like specific case that we are here to discuss. Like, no longer can you make a general World War II film. You now have to be like, okay, there's a specific radar technology in this year of the war that is a make-or-break deal. And we, in this movie, are specifically concerned with this radar technology. And the Germans could, you know, propagate it all uh, across the Atlantic coast of Europe and that would be bad. So we need to like find out what their technology is and possibly sabotage it before, before it gets off the ground. Right. It's the German super weapon plot. Yeah. It's the German super weapon plot, but it's also just like a, uh, Hey, like, so I know that there are like 10 million world war two films, but have you seen one about weird radar? <laughs> <laughs> World War II has generated more fanfic than almost anything but Star Trek. <laughs> and throughout the 60s and 70s, it was extremely an extremely popular form of pulp novel for there to be a novel about a secret German weapon that no one knew about during the course of the war, but it could have changed the tide of the war at any point. And it was all, it was always some kind of laser beam or some sort of thing, some German secret weapon. Right. And I think now it has become, it's, it's like morphed over into a history channel kind of trope. Could Nostradamus have been warned about a future catastrophe? But, but in the seventies <laughs> yeah. and in the sixties, it was way more fun. I feel like even PBS has those. Yeah, I know these days, right? But it used to be it used to be the source of like dime store novels. And it was really fun. I read so many of those. And it's a kind of war movie, right? 
we haven't seen as many of them, but... I, f- I feel like as we go through this, we're going to encounter them more and more. But there's a novel I read in high school that I really liked called Cryptonomicon, where they're like cracking the German codes and... And like once they've got them all cracked, then they have this problem of, okay, if we start like sinking every sub or, you know, foiling every troop movement that they try and do, they're going to realize that we've cracked the codes. So now we have to like really judiciously start fucking with their plans in a way that will prevent them from knowing that we know what we know. Sure. The Bletchley Park problem of making it seem like an accident. Right. And uh, this movie like kind of feels like it starts to to have the first part of that which is like okay like we found out about like this incredibly sensitive installation in Norway that like is for some reason guarded by a crack squad of SS troops cuz it's like the linchpin to the German electronic defense network uh but we're going to send like eight guys in there with submachine guns and and knock the whole thing out it seems like you're kind of like showing your hand to the germans in a way right although you could just have sent a bunch of bombers but i guess i guess with a bunch of bombers you wouldn't have been able to get those code books and all that secret technology that's the thing they do make the case that like they have to make it look like they didn't get any actual intel is that yeah but this was based on and i don't think that it I don't think that it explicitly ever says, but there there actually was a, a German radar. It was uh, situated across the Atlantic wall. It did create a problem. And there was a British commando mo- uh, like event where they paratrooped in and stole the, actually stole one of the radars, like folded it up and took it with them. But it was, a, it was, a, it, it happened in <laughs> France it involved a whole brigade. I mean, there were like 150 commandos. Um, they like blew up a whole, you know, they raided a whole installation. And then there were like boats that picked them up kind of on the Normandy coast. And they, they totally stole this whole thing and, and like back engineered it. That's a killer movie. They didn't have a thing where they called for the boats and they were like, sorry, there's no boats. No, the boats actually came, although there was some kind of snafu with the boats where it was like, they were supposed to land one at a time, but they all landed at once. Lol. But um, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, for a 90 minute movie, this movie has a ton of fucking shit in it. Like it's got a crazy radar plot line. It's got like the formation of the first commando unit. It's got the like, sadistic German officer that does reprisal killings in Norway. It's got the girl who was like in love with the guy who was the real contact, but then he died. And so she became the contact and she is like playing a long con to try and get exfiltrated from Norway. Like (laughs) how many subplots can you pack into a 90 minute movie? You need 20% more story on all of those subplots though. If you pulled one away... Maybe there's a really great 90-minute film in here. Just start with, like, a commando team that's made up... Because none of the none yeah. of the qualities that the prison establishes Bob Rains as having ever play into the rest of the plot. So, like, his renegade spirit isn't an issue. And if anything, it makes Jones look weak. Like, this fucking prisoner got one over on him? Yeah, right. That's not a good look. I feel like the Liv Jensen... Uh, like subplot also was somewhat of a misdirection because uh, when they first meet her, you know, like she runs into the thing, her, she's got a hood up or whatever. And as I'm watching the film, I turned to my, my film friend and said, uh, 10 out of 10, this is a beautiful uh, girl. Who's also like a resistance fighter. And sure enough, there she is. And it was just like, come on. It's just, I mean, you didn't need to hide her under a under a, a blanket. It's clear who it is. Would you believe that she is, that, that actress, Isabella Miko, is two years older than I am? This is a movie from 2011, Ben. She was 20. Okay, well. So there it is. I failed to do that, man. You looked great in 2011, Ben. I knew you in 2011. Remember? You were cute as a bug. <laughs> I remember when, when John and I first met you, you were wearing that hood and John like sort of elbowed me and he's like, 
10 out of 10, when this person turns around, it's going to be a young 30-year-old Benjamin R. Harrison. <laughs> it's going to be 10 out of 10. This, this kid is going to look like a prep school tennis instructor. And sure enough. <laughs> yeah. Won that bet too. The, the thing is, when she takes her hood off and, we, and she is revealed, our Norwegian commando, uh, Lieutenant Mortensen, speaks to her, a Norwegian, in English and never speaks to her in Norwegian one time in the entire film. And when it first happens, I was like, okay, this is significant. Why is the Norwegian, the guy who's on the commando squad for one reason only, he's Norwegian. Why is he speaking to this Norwegian person in English? And I, and I felt like, oh, he smells a rat. Or Lieutenant Mortensen is a rat. Because it cuts to Bob Rains, who looks at Mortensen quizzically. And I was like, oh, this is it. This is the plot. Rains is going to figure out that Mortensen is a plant. He doesn't speak Norwegian at all. <laughs> and I'm like, wow, this movie just got really interesting. And then none of that plays out. It's never explained why Mortensen doesn't speak to her in Norwegian. We get the we get some version of that, like things aren't what they seem subplot, but it's just that Liv Jensen's boyfriend died and she's filling in for him. There's nothing sinister about it. She's actually helping them, but it just bobbles along and it feels like we're being given the beats of an interesting movie, but at all of the beat points there it's like a closed hi-hat or something you know you're, it's not even a closed hi-hat it's like it's like your bottom hat is cracked so you're getting a <laughs> it's like the sm57 that was on the hi-hat has fallen off of the stand and mm. you're still getting hat in the monitor you just can't tell why it sounds so bad my doctor tells me i've been diagnosed with broken bottom hat just so you know lieutenant broken bottom hat (laughs) hey how did we get lieutenant out of lieutenant speaking of that well lieutenant is the thing that came before lieutenant i i understand their equivalency i just don't understand the 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 nomenclature i don't understand how one became the other we're all speaking english right how how is loot transformed into left lieutenant it's not transformed into lieutenant it came from lieutenant what appears to be a maritime pronunciation lieutenant and a non-maritime form lieutenant american Mm. english uses the maritime form it is also the form closer to the french pronunciation whence we can presume the english word to have been borrowed you know if you're a pilot in the in the German military, you're a lieutenant, right? <laughs> oh, it says here that the British pronunciation of it likely comes from a misreading of the word where the U is taken as a V. I knew it was a mistake. See, this is how things work on Friendly Fire. I mispronounce a thing and then it becomes canon. That's how lieutenant happened. <laughs> and it's because it's because it was mis it was mistranscribed at a time before the U and the V became distinct letters. Wow. We all learned something today. It's really it turns out it's the friends you made along the way. Hmm. And there was only one set of footprints in the snow. It was when I was carrying both of you ding dongs. There are schnapps. Do we need like the extremely long scene of the SS troop killing the the farmer and his family? Well, that's the thing. We're we're getting the shorthand and also they're showing it to us. So it's yeah. like, yes, Nazis bad, but also we're going to get these Nazis killing these Norwegians. And the reason and the and the whole scene that's another thing. Why do they go back to the same farmhouse for food? Like, you can't do that. They're on their way to the coast. You know, they got to get out of here. They're going through Sweden or somewhere. They're not going back. You're not doubling back. The only reason they're going back to the farmhouse is so the movie can show us the Norwegians being killed by the Germans. And that whole thing just does not stand. We see a lot of war films where we've got an assembly of troops to go do the impossible suicide mission where we aren't given the end boss bad guy 
It's just a very difficult mission that you're outnumbered for. It seems like this film could benefit from that. Just remove the heavy. I, I... Remove the heavy. Don't go back to the same farmhouse. It feels like they promised something to the guy who played uh, the SS officer. And like, that's the reason that he's the heavy. But you don't know anything about him other than he's cruel. Like there's nothing unique or interesting about him at all. I think this is addition addition by subtraction. Get rid of him. Yeah. Lose that tool. He sucks. I am interested in the Norwegians as a part of this war story, though, and maybe not specifically in this film, but their involvement in this is something that interests me. It doesn't seem like we, we get representation of them too often in World War II, right? That's something that... I'm always interested in seeing more of is like, what else, what else do we not know about world war two? And yeah. like this movie seems to burn a lot of calories, like justifying the like radar plot line as being like worth our attention. But like Norway by itself is interesting, you know? Yeah. Norway is very interesting. Are you a Lutfisk lover, John? No, no. I mean, Norway is interesting because, <laughs> uh, because it costs $15 to, to get like a beer <laughs> i don't even drink beer and i'm insulted by that but you know they have they have uh, you know free medicine and i guess you got a lot of spare money to to spend on beer if you if you don't have to pay for your health care you have to pay 80 percent taxes that's why you don't have to pay for health care and that's why your beer is 15 dollars. <laughs> i don't know here come the letters <laughs> go fuck yourself at Max Frankenstein dot sex. Where is the country with the socialized beer? <gasps> oh, you know? like why do I have to oh, pay for beer? There's your platform. Why don't my neighbors ben pay Harrison for beer? For president, two thousand thirty-two. <laughs> the micro brews <laughs> are too expensive. One <laughs> percent of the macro brews make ninety-nine percent. <laughs> Off the backs of the micro brews. <laughs> wow. Well, uh, that's Age of Heroes. <laughs> Bloody good. Fleming says Age of Honor in, in his little speech in the tent. I thought he was going to say Age of Heroes. I love it when they say the title of the film in the film. He glanced off of it. <laughs> age of uh, Honor. The Age of Honor. I was clicking the IMDb and I found out that Danny Dyer and James Darcy are in another war film together with Daniel Craig set in World War One. Whoa. What? It's a 1999 film called The Trench. Oh, let's see that. And Killian Murphy's in it too. Holy shit. Put it on the list. I've already done so. Has James Darcy and Benedict Cumberbatch ever been in the same movie? It seems like Darcy could play younger Cumberbatch. Younger Batch? You get a sense fairly early on that this film's values are different from a lot of the other war films we've seen. I think it values time, maybe more than most. (laughs) But another way that I feel like it really picks its battles it's in isn't its costuming and i i mean i'm not normally the costume guy on friendly fire but my breath was taken away by the costumes in this film it is it is a notable sweater film and uh it's a sweater film with three glaring examples it's mackenzie's green drawstring there's fleming's white sweater and yeah. then I feel like Fleming gave his white sweater to Sean Bean later because <laughs> Sean Bean wears exactly the same white sweater. And here's something I want to know about the military at this time. When you're issued your garments, your uniforms and, and, and everything else, are you given just a, a piece of, of luggage and you've got your cable knits and your, <laughs> and your, your formal wear? And your and your snow camo, like like how do you get all this stuff? I imagine everyone has this white cable knit in their in their storage locker somewhere. And it's amazing that this is a thing. Anyway, this made me think about whether or not Age of Heroes is gonna hold up after years of wear or if it's just gonna become snagged and pilled after the one viewing that we've given it. <laughs> so on a scale of one to five sweaters, let's decide. I'm not going to bite 
a lot of John Roderick's rhymes in in this portion of the show, but I will say that this film has a lot of the ingredients of a satisfying war film. We get the training montage, the collection of imperfect soldiers, the impossible mission. But it feels like all of these great ingredients have not been in the pot long enough. All the great stuff is there, but it's only 90 minutes long. I feel like this is a war film that I can immediately watch another war film after, like in a way that a meal is momentarily satisfying, but then I'm hungry after another hour or two. And it's so weird because like that doesn't make it bad. I don't think this is a bad movie. I think it is unsatisfyingly derivative. It's got some interesting qualities like when Reigns holds the knife up to his own throat at the end to possibly avoid being captured alive. I don't remember seeing that before. I I fully expected him to slit his own throat. And if he had, I mean, here's a mind game to play. Is this a lot better movie if he does? Kind of feel like maybe so. So, I don't know. That is That is emblematic of a way that this film chooses to be, where it's a little bit safe, it's a little bit derivative, it's familiar, but it's so fast I can't hate it. It does not waste my time with itself. I mean, I'm not going to give it the two-sweater treatment. I feel like that's too cruel. But I am going to give it the three-sweater treatment, which is which is fine. It's fine. I don't think you're going to watch this movie and be disappointed that you saw it. If this were a two-hour film, I would say that that you would be. But I think the time works in its favor, so... Three sweaters it is for me. You get some bonus points, to be sure, for making your movie not a pain in the ass to watch. <laughs> and this movie is not a pain in the ass to watch. It's like, it moves. It's pretty entertaining. It's got some genuinely interesting parts. And I feel like it's a steaming mess in a lot of places, but... um I almost don't know how to rate it because I was like, thank goodness this movie's 90 minutes and not 100 minutes even. Yeah. Like, I didn't mind it. I didn't love it. I probably will never watch it again, but like, fine. (laughs) It's fine. Uh, Two and three quarter sweaters. Well, I think we've covered this movie pretty thoroughly yeah, you know, I agree with everything everybody said. I feel like the uh, the sweaters, and I'd like to point out that there are the two incredible white sweaters, but uh, one of the characters in the white sweater scene is wearing the same sweater except navy blue. There is a third sweater. That's a great color. And all three sweaters are... Uh, among the greatest sweaters. The sweaters alone should give the movie an extra half a sweater just for the sweaters. <laughs> Indeed. And so that extra half sweater, the basically the blue sweater, is what makes this a two and a half sweater movie. Because it really is, you know, if I watch this movie on a plane, I would feel like, yeah. It's fine. I, uh, one of the fantasy jobs I've always had is like punch up. I always wanted to be the punch up guy on a script. Two ways to punch up Age of Heroes. One, get rid of this green camo, put them all in white sweaters. We're fighting in the snow wearing the sweaters. Also, we're changing the title to Sweater War. (laughs) (laughs) Which... I know you will agree is a better title than Age of Heroes. In searching for this movie on our streaming service, I got auto-suggested Age of Ultron. (laughs) I had to be reminded that that dog shit existed. (laughs) So maybe we should let Age of Heroes not be the title of this movie is what I'm trying to say. Yep. All right. All right, guys. uh, Who are your guys and what are they wearing? I had a really hard time deciding on my guy, and it's definitely between Mac and Jones. I think I've got to give it to to Mac because, like, I I've just never I 
as far as I can tell, I don't think I've ever seen this actor in anything before. And he is having so much fun. He is a fucking magnetic presence on screen. I I just fell head over heels for him. I want to see him in everything now. And I'm sad that I will have to like seek out weird like British uh period piece television series to to get my William Houston fix. So uh he's my guy. Ben hardest possible agree. I I'm so glad that you pronounced it Houston. If if you've ever been to New York, you know to pronounce his last name that way. I think his Sergeant McKenzie is one of the coolest guys in all of Friendly Fire. In any Friendly Fire movie we've seen. Yeah, he fucking rules. He's one of the best characters we've ever gotten in a movie. He's fucking great. Yeah. John, is he your guy too? I mean, he's definitely the guy of this movie. But, you know, I have to pick Secretary Sophie Holbrook. Played by the English actress, uh, actress Rosie Fellner, because Rosie is in a relationship with weird Lieutenant Mortensen, who is the Norwegian who doesn't speak Norwegian, <laughs> which is another weird plot thing that happens at the beginning of the movie. I bet she could have gotten the submarine if he'd put her on the phone. That's exactly right. If you had Rosie Fellner calling up subs and you had this movie around William Houston and Sean Bean and left everybody else out of it, it would just be called Sub Chaser. Except <laughs> she's not chasing him with a ship. She's chasing him on the phone. Is that really a better title Bean, than Sweater War? Bean and Houston are just running around Norway going from port to port because she's like calling him up like, okay, the sub is going to be in Oslo. And they go to Oslo. Oh, it's not there. Sub chaser. If you're writing a war film and you have not consulted the assembled hosts of Friendly Fire for your punch ups, I, I can't even help you. Yeah. <laughs> go fuck yourself at maxfunkenstein.sex. That's how you get a hold of us. Yeah. Our, our representation is at uh, Creative Artists Agency. Um. Yeah. Yeah. You can find us through CAA, but... Uh, that email address goes there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> goes straight to them. <laughs> What's our next movie, guys? That's the real question here. Well, I've got my coffee mug. And I've got my 120-sided die. And I've got my squeaky chair. Here we go. Sixty-seven. Sixty-seven. Nice. Oh, boy. Gentlemen. Oh, boy. Their next movie is directed by Sergei Eisenstein. What? It is from 1925. Whoa. It's about the Russian Revolution. It is called Battleship Potemkin. No kidding. Pretty great. I can't believe we haven't gotten here already. I've never seen it. Super excited. Yeah. I am astonished to say, having attended a four-year film school, I also have never seen this movie. Uh, I have seen it, but not since I was in college. And who knows under what circumstances I did. I feel like this is like the fates smiling on us because uh, Battleship Potemkin is a humane hour and six minutes long. Wow. Finally. That will be next week on Friendly Fire. In the meantime, we're going to leave it with Rob's, 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 Rob's for John Roderick and Adam Franica. I've been Ben Harrison. To the victor, go the spoiler alerts. Friendly Fire is a Maximum Fun podcast hosted by Adam Franica, Ben Harrison, and John Roderick. The show is produced by me, Rob Schulte. Our theme music is War by Edwin Starr, courtesy of Stone Agate Music, and our podcast art is by Nick Dittmer. Need a little more Friendly Fire? Why not jump into our back catalog? Last year at this time, we covered 
Top Secret from 1984. It's a film about a popular American singer who gets caught up in an underground resistance movement. Feel like supporting our show? Well, then head on over to MaximumFun.org join, and for as little as $5 a month, not only will you receive our bonus Pork Chop episodes, you will get access to all of the bonus content offered by Maximum Fun. And don't forget, you can now follow us on Twitter and Instagram under the handles FriendlyFireRSS. So thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week with another episode of Friendly Fire. To keep I'm I'm gonna trust Rob's to be able to get get my my deep melodious voice back so that it overpowers you dudes. Rob's is gonna ride the levels down like he's riding an atomic bomb. Yeah. Maximumfun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.